Hey friend, are you struggling to find consistent paid speaking gigs? Do you want to know the exact six steps that you can take to find and book more paid speaking opportunities in 2024? Well, we want to make that easy for you. We've created a new free resource with the help of Dan Irvin, one of our highly successful speakers on our team. Dan has booked over $100,000 in paid speaking gigs in the last few years, and his six-step process is going to help you maximize your chances of getting booked and paid to speak in any industry. You're going to learn how to get started prospecting, master discovery calls, and proposal emails and so much more. All you got to do is go to thespeakerlab.com slash steps and we're going to send you this 18-page guide straight to your inbox. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash steps and you're going to get that free guide. Hey, thanks for listening. You're awesome. Hey, what's up, my friends? Grant Baldwin here. Welcome back to the Speaker Lab podcast. We are glad that you're here, glad that you're joining us. Hope you're having a great day, whatever it is that you're up to or wherever it is that you're at. We appreciate you hanging out with us and uh, joining us. Hey, one of the things that we started uh, a couple weeks ago is we started a brand new YouTube channel. And a lot of what we're doing on that channel right now is a lot of speech breakdown. So we are taking popular talks and TED Talks and presentations, speeches, and uh, kind of walking through those and kind of showing behind the scenes of uh, like kind of a reaction style video showing why why they work, what pieces don't work, what pieces could be improved, and how you can take some of the same ideas, concepts, and principles and apply them to your next presentation. So we've got a lot of talks over there from some of the more popular TED Talks that uh, are online. So definitely stop by and check that out. We'd love for you. If you like the show, if you like the, the videos, then definitely subscribe to the channel, like some of the videos, comment on the videos, and uh, we'd love to connect with you over there as well. So you can find that by going over to youtube.com slash thespeakerlab. Again, you can find that by going over to youtube.com slash the speaker lab. So today uh, we have a good guest. We have uh, Todd Henry who's joining us today. Uh, you can find him over at toddhenry.com. We talk about this a little bit at the end, but Todd has one of the best websites for speakers and just kind of personal brand websites. So definitely check out his site. Unfortunately, he, uh, he created it, customized it all himself. So there's no magical template out there, but really, really good template, a really good example of a site to check out. So again, toddhenry.com. So uh, in, Todd's, in our conversation with Todd, we're going to be talking through how he got into speaking, how he made that transition from being an employee to a professional full-time speaker, what happened in that transition that made him want to quit numerous times. Todd is also very successful, not only as a speaker, but also as, a, as an author, consultant. So we talk about how all these pieces fit together today. And then we talk about what he does today at this moment to find speaking gigs and clients. So a lot of great stuff here from Todd. I think you're going to get a lot from this conversation. So let's get right into it. Here's my conversation with Todd Henry. Enjoy. Hey, what's up, my friends? Graham Baldwin here today, joined by my buddy Todd Henry, who is a successful speaker and author and all-around great guy. So Todd, thanks for taking a couple minutes to hang out with us today. Hey, it's great to be here, Grant. Uh, for people who aren't familiar with your work, why don't you start by just giving us a quick snapshot of what it is that you do and how speaking fits into it, and then we'll, we'll go from there. Sure, yeah. So I am an author of four books. Um, I wrote a book called The Accidental Creative that came out in uh, 2011, and then I wrote a book called Die Empty in 2013, or at least it was released in 2013. As you know, it's a multi-year process Take, to write It takes a minute. Yeah, that's right. I uh, wrote a book called Louder Than Words that came out in 2015, and then my newest book is called Herding Tigers be the leader that creative people need, which is about how to create an environment that in which creative teams can thrive. And that came out in early 2018. So really, I write books, I work with companies, I consult, and I speak. So I speak at a lot of events, do a lot of keynotes, that kind of thing. I also do workshops with companies, especially do workshops and mostly focused around 
the creative process and how to collaborate more effectively and then how to create an environment in which the creative process can thrive. What were you doing before all of this? So I led creative teams for a number of years. That was kind of the genesis. I mean, I think like a lot of origin stories, sort of we create the medicine that cures our own sickness, uh, our own pain. And leading creative teams for a number of years, I just realized that it's really hard to keep people, what I came to term later, prolific, brilliant, and healthy all at the same time. So prolific, meaning doing a lot of work, brilliant, meaning doing good work, and healthy, meaning doing it sustainably. And I just discovered it's really difficult to do that. So I started trying to find, in some ways, kind of like the silver bullet that would help me help my team do that. And over the course of a number of years, just developed the kind of methodology that I started sharing in 2005 in the form of a podcast, which I know that's like, you know, the ancient days of podcasting. Right, you know, it's right. like, that's like podcasting papyrus, right? That's like <laughs> the, the precursor to modern day. But, but it was, you know, back then there weren't a lot of people having these kind of conversations. And so quickly gained an audience. I mean, thousands of people out of the gate started listening to the show. I was still working a job, leading teams at that point. And so a couple of years later, started really getting some significant momentum and, and started getting invited to companies like Mattel and Intel and Intuit and some of these other companies to, to start sharing some things that were going on in the podcast. And I realized, I think that there's a business here to help yeah. other teams figure out some of this stuff that isn't really being discussed. And so I started my business and then shortly thereafter was, you know, given the opportunity to write the first book and, you know, it was kind of off to the races at that point. But yeah, that's kind of the origin story. It really came from my own pain as a leader trying to figure out how do I wrangle these people and help them be more effective in the create on demand world that we all live in today. Were you always wanting to do your own thing or is this something that just kind of felt like a natural transition that kind of fell in your lap? No, I, I don't think I ever really, I mean, I think I've always been a bit of an entrepreneur. I think in spirit. Even when I was younger, I remember I performed music in my misguided teens and twenties, as I now call them. (laughs) But, uh, you know, I I remember starting like out of my parents' house, I started a recording studio, which I had no business doing (laughs) because I had like a four track cassette tape recorder and somehow convinced this band to drive 75 minutes to my parents' <laughs> house to record this like terribly crappy little, but, right. but I was able to do, you know, so I think, I think I always, uh, and by the way, the end result actually sounded really good. I was very yeah. impressed with the result. You know, I don't think they were terribly impressed that they drove that far for what was a less than impressive setup. But I think I've always had that kind of entrepreneurial spirit and then working for organizations, I was always kind of the instigator inside of an organization, the one asking a lot of questions, the one kind of always asking, why are we doing this? What if we tried this? What if we blow it all up and start all over again? Which was a little bit annoying. So even though I wasn't always running my own company, I think that drive was always inside of me to start with a blank canvas and and try to build something from scratch. And even now, I'm not sure if if you experience this dynamic as well, but I think when people tend to be starters, I think that it's always tempting to continue that let's blow it up and start over thing. And so it's difficult now as somebody actually running a company, right? On the other side of it. Right way to build this so that I don't end up, you know, sort of like the snake eating its own tail kind of thing. Like I don't end up devouring myself by my desire to always blow things up and start over again. That's always the real challenge. So you're doing that internally. You're leading some teams on the creative process. And how are those initial opportunities starting to come to you? Is it just kind of organically? Did did it come from the podcast or where did that kind of begin? 
Yeah, it, it all really came from the podcast. I mean, the podcast, as I mentioned, was gaining thousands of followers. It's funny because when I launched it in 2005, I just kind of put it out there. I mean, there was no business model. I wasn't planning on doing anything with it. I just really wanted to you know, be a service to the community, I think, in some way. And so I put it out there and kind of forgot about it. And then I was looking for, so there were maybe five episodes out and I was just kind of doing them whenever I wanted to. And I went looking for podcasts to listen to on iTunes and I happened to cross this podcast called The Accidental Creative that was one of the top podcasts on iTunes. And my first thought, Grant, was, oh no, I stole somebody else's name. I can't believe I didn't check first. <laughs> and it was my podcast wow. that was suddenly like one of the top podcasts on that, which to, to be clear, there were like 15 of us at the time doing podcasts, <laughs> right? So it wasn't like a, but I think I realized at that moment, like there's really something here. There's yeah. really something here. And what happened over time is as I was putting that work out into the world, I began to find people who resonated with what I was saying. It took a couple of years for it to get out and for people to start finding it and then sharing it and all of that. But all of the first speaking opportunities came from me showing people I have something to offer. There's a perspective here that maybe you've not heard before. It's precise, it's helpful, it's generous. And I think if we do all of these things, I think that we eventually find the people that would want to work with us. But I mean, it's not always a one-to-one, -one, right? Especially with a lot of noise in the world. So right. I think it just requires a tremendous amount of patience. It was years of doing the podcast before I had the opportunity to you know, write a book and do all of that. It just took a long time of continuing to put things out into the world to, to try to connect with the people who I thought might find it valuable. It was saving and scrapping and, and basically right. saving every penny that, that I made from the business for, you know, while I was still working for an organization so I could sort of prepare some runway for launching my own thing. Yeah. I think if you put valuable things into the world and you present them in a way that are generous and you present them in a way that are precise and helpful, you're not spouting platitudes, but you're actually offering legitimate help to people, then you can't help but eventually, I think, find the people who will say, I want to go to the next level on this. Right, right. I want to bring you in and, and have you help us go to the next level on this. So I'm a little curious on that transition there. So you're doing the podcast for a few years. You're starting to get uh, some traction with that. You're starting to get some people who are interested in working with you, whether it's speaking or through other means. At some point, you're going to look probably looking at things going like, all right, I got the full-time job going. And right. that's the thing that allows me to eat and live indoors. I need to keep doing that. But at the same time, I'm feeling this tension of I've got some momentum building over here. Kind of talk us through that thought process of how did you ultimately decide to, to make the leap and feel like there's enough there and there's enough sustainable momentum that I can do this on a full-time level? Yeah. So I would say, you know, a lot of people say, well, replace your income before you make that leap. I don't know that that's always a luxury that people have. It wasn't a luxury for me to do that only because when you're working full time, knowing that my primary business model at first was going to be selling my time, I just didn't have enough time to sell to be able to right. replace my income because I'm selling my time to someone else. I have right. a job. Right. And I also, by the way, had three kids and a wife who you know, wanted to make sure didn't you know, still like you, me, you know, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. So it just wasn't feasible to do that. So what I did, as I, as I mentioned, is I had a handful of products that I'd created and I basically scrapped and saved any speaking engagement that I did, whatever they paid me, just went straight into a business bank account and I just kept it. I just saved it. And my wife and I had determined that there was a certain number that we needed to hit to have enough runway to make sure that we were able to go at least a year and a half 
without me drawing an income if necessary so that we could give it a good go. And then at the end of a year, a one-year period, when we had about six months left, I would start re-strategizing and maybe looking for a job if it didn't pan out. But I think sometimes people talk about taking risks and, and making a leap. And we're talking about strategic risk. We're not talking about stupid risk, especially yeah. when you have a family, you have a mortgage, you have kids. You can't afford to take stupid risks. I mean, you have to be smart about it. And so you need to know what your runway is. For some people, that runway may have been three months. But for my wife and I, given our circumstances, that runway was about a year and a half. So we knew at some point when I hit that year and a half threshold that I was going to make the leap. And it took a while to get there. And so another sort of point for people who are thinking about making that leap, you have to be aligned with all of your stakeholders. So if you have a spouse, a partner, kids, everybody has to be aligned around that leap, that objective, and understand the potential consequences of that leap. And if you're not aligned, if you don't have an agreement about the runway that you need, about how your lifestyle might change, all of that. And we get to the point where we say, listen, our lifestyle, we, like, we might have to sell our house. We might have to move somewhere else if this doesn't work. And we just sort of got to that place where we realized it is more painful not to do this than it is to do right. it and fail. I always liken it to, I feel like you know, for a while, a lot of people have one foot in a boat and one foot on shore. Yeah. And the boat is starting to leave the dock. And that's the moment when you start sensing the boat is leaving the dock. That's the moment when you have to decide, am I going to jump in the boat or am I going to stay on the shore? And either is a perfectly respectable decision, right. but you have to make a decision or you're going to end up in the water. And for me, it was, I need to jump in the boat. I need to see if this can go because the regret of not trying it is far going to outweigh trying it and failing and having to go get another job. Yeah. And I can always go get another job, but I can't always try to seize the momentum of, of this moment. So right. that's going to work. I, I love how, just one final thought, I love how Seth Godin talks about risk-taking. Um, you know, Seth is sort of the master guru of being able to say things in a pithy way. And he once shared in an interview with me, he was saying, you know, the goal is to take risks in a way that keeps you in the game. So you don't want to take a risk that's going to take you out of the game. Don't take a yeah. risk that's going to leave you in a place where you don't have resources, you can't try again at something. So when you're thinking about making a leap or taking a risk, I think it's really valuable just to think, okay, what kind of risk can I take that if I fail, I'm still in the game. I still have resources. Right. I can still redirect. Right. So I'm curious, one of the things that you touched on earlier is that that took several years to get that momentum. So just for context, like you, from the ballpark, from the time you started the podcast to the time that you made that transition, how long would that have been? It was about four and a half years. So four um, and a half years of building something and half right. the time, not really sure what it is that you're building or where it is that you're going. And then half the time going, all right, I think we're going to do this. Let's figure out how to make the leap. But four and a half years is a long time. So at some point, yes. I'm sure there are multiple points you're feeling like, why am I doing this again? And is this worth it? And even though you may have in the back of your mind, like, I'd rather do this and it'd be a train wreck. And at least I tried than to always wonder what if, but I'm sure there's also those days where you're just wondering, like, I went a streak where I booked a bunch of gigs and I had a lot of good successful podcast downloads. And then I went a streak where like, there's just crickets and nothing and everything in between. So what are you feeling in that four and a half years and like the low points of just, are you second oh. guessing? Like, why am I doing this again? Or is this going to be worth it? Absolutely. I almost quit about five times. There was one especially <laughs> memorable moment where 
when you're building a business, I mean, I was learning how to build websites. I was learning how to do database management. I was learning how, I mean, back then, again, again, right now, it's like you go somewhere, you pay 10 bucks a month, you click a button and you've got a website, right? Back then it was not that easy. It was, okay, I'm figuring out how to build all of this. Do I build it in Joomla? Do I build it in Drupal? Do I build it in WordPress, which was in its infancy? Do I, and so it was all of this stuff I was trying to figure out let alone like trying to figure out e-commerce. And I mean, it was just very complicated and I didn't have the resources to just say, well, I'll just plop, you know, 25 grand on this and make it happen. Well, uh, let's just say I didn't have the available resources without going to marriage counseling to do that. So it was a really, really a struggle. And I remember one especially difficult time when I came out of my home office and I went, I sat down I had just basically destroyed the website database, including all of the e-commerce stuff that I was doing. All of I had sort of like a membership kind of thing that I experimented with for a while early on. And you know, all of my membership data was lost, all the recurring payment data was lost. Basically everything that I've been working on for wow. months and months and months was just lost. And I came out and I sat down on our family room floor. My wife was there and I was on the verge of tears and she's like, what's going on? And she still remembers this to this day too. And I said, I just destroyed everything I spent two and a half years working on. I don't think I can do this anymore. And she said, well, whatever you decide, I'll support you. And this was it, by the way, like 1130 at night too. So it was like late and I knew I had to be up at like six to go to work the next day. And she said, whatever you do, I'll support you. And I sat there and had my little pity party moment for probably five minutes. And then I got up and went back in my office and I, and I went to work. And I think I went to bed at like four that morning and I still didn't have everything resolved. I got up a couple hours later to go to work and somehow, I, I still to this day don't understand it, Grant, but somehow the database had healed itself. Everything had sort of self-corrected. So I don't know wow. if it was a server side error or what was going on and they figured it out and they fixed it. But somehow everything was fixed. But in that moment, I almost legitimately just said, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I was working from 5.30 to 7 in the morning on my business. And then from like 8 to 11 at night, every single day of the week, I was taking vacation time to go speak whenever I had, you know, so my my family did not go on a legitimate vacation for like two and a half years because every ounce of vacation time I had, I was taking to fly across the country to speak to a company or to do something like that. And it was just this really difficult season where I felt like I was living in two worlds, um, one of which was paying my bills and the other of which sort of at that point kind of had my heart, I think, in a lot of ways. But I didn't know if it would be feasible or or pan out. And so there are several of those kind of moments. And the thing is, we backward sanitize stories, don't we? I mean, we we always talk about the high points and the learnings and all that stuff. But I don't know about you, Grant, but I mean, I still have those low moments today. I mean, the low moments are, I think, better because I've experienced enough of them now to know that, oh, there are cycles in business. Oh, there are going to be months at a time maybe where the phone doesn't ring as much as you want it to. And then all of a sudden, things turn around again. But I think at that point, I didn't have enough experience, enough context to understand those cycles. I've learned now that when business slows down, that's my opportunity to kind of regroup and re-strategize and plan and do some of the writing I need to do and all that kind of stuff. Because I know that when I'm on the road for as much as I'm on the road often, you know, I don't have the time to do that stuff. So you learn over time, you see the patterns, but I think it's a disservice that we do to the community when we don't talk about those cyclical things that happen in right. the ups and downs because I think everybody thinks, well, it's easy for Grant. I mean, Grant's successful. I mean, you know, Grant never has those, you know, those struggles or those down moments. I um, wish. 
<laughs> I guess, I mean, you do like, that, you know? Yeah. And you and I are in a, uh, a private Facebook group with a, a bunch of other uh, speakers and, and, um, and several very, very successful speakers that I'm sure many people would, would know and recognize. And, and it's not uncommon for people to kind of commiserate and share in there of, you know, I've gone several months without booking a gig or this has been my slowest year or whatever. And mm-hmm. other people chime in and saying, me too. I get that. I understand. I've been there, you know, and making that transition early on is difficult, but I don't know that it necessarily, maybe it gets like marginally easier, but it's still like, it is a lot of work and there's still a lot of highs and lows. And I, I've shared the story before, but it reminded me of a couple of years ago, I was at like a, an entrepreneur breakfast and there was a guy there who'd had a, a side hustle. He'd kind of been working on a building and he had just quit his, his, job. This is a, his first week full-time self-employed. And I said, they are, congrats, man. How you feeling? And he said, I'm, I'm excited. I'm scared. I'm anxious. I'm nervous. I'm all of the above, all the range of emotions. And I said, I, yeah. I've been self-employed for 12 or 13 years now. And like, that doesn't go away. Like there's mm-hmm. still days you're like, this is awesome. I know what I'm doing. It's working. And days you're like, this is it. Like I, I need to put the resume together here and, and find the, figure out the next thing. I was changed. that in that group that we were, that you were just referencing, I think the other day somebody made a comment every, he said twice a year, I have the thought, I think I've given my last speech. And yeah. this is somebody who, I mean, this is somebody who most people would recognize yeah. and somebody who has been very successful in their career, in their business. But they said, you know, I think it was December and July or the two times when they're like, okay, I've given my last speech. I have nothing on the calendar. I don't know if it's going to, my wife and I, every single year, my wife and I have that conversation of like, all right, we're going into a new year. This could be the year everything falls apart. You know, right. even giving dozens of speeches a year for the last 10 years, you just never know when, for whatever reason, things could, yeah. and, and it, every year it feels like you're starting all over again. So if you want to pursue this as a business model, just understand that that uncertainty is never going to go away. And you have to learn to not, not just live with the uncertainty, but actually relish the uncertainty to a certain degree. You have to say, this could be my worst year ever, or this could be a year that blows everything out of the water that I never expected could ever possibly be this good. Like That's just kind of how you have to, you have to approach your life. There's just yeah. no way around. There is no predictable system for guaranteeing you're going to get sp- X number of speaking gigs a year. It just doesn't work. Is there anything that you do or don't do to kind of help manage those highs and lows? Yeah. I mean, I mentioned that I try to take advantage of the, of the cycles a bit. Um, yeah. You know, downtime is for strategy planning, redoing some of my promotional materials, you know, having strategic conversations with my agent, you know, things of that nature. Again, I work on books, you know, I write books. So downtime can actually be really healthy for me. It can be really helpful. Um, when I'm traveling multiple days a week, it's really difficult to get into a writing rhythm. I know some people say, oh, I write on airplanes. I, I have a really difficult time writing on airplanes. I'm just I'm too distractible. Yeah. I can write on airplanes. I mean, of course. I mean, we're professionals. We do what we have to do. But I find that my best work doesn't happen on airplanes, at airports, yeah. that kind of thing. You know, I tend to use travel to kind of decompress, especially if I'm heading into a gig. My job is to deliver. So whatever it takes for me to be ready to deliver when I get there, that's what I need to do. If that means decompressing on an airplane, that's what I do. Same with coming home. Like I need to be fresh for my family. I'm not going to spend a three-hour flight cranking through emails after giving a, a talk and you know having been on the road for three days and then come home to my family and say, hey, I need a couple of hours by myself because I just spent three hours doing email. No, I mean, you know, I want to be fresh when I come home from my family. So 
I think you, you, you learn to use the downtime effectively. I actually look forward to it because it gives me a chance to develop new products, to, to you know, do some writing, to do some web development or whatever that, that I need to, which I still you know, have my hand in. Um, it's hard to let go of all that completely. So. Right. So one of the things I'm curious on is today you have, you do speaking, you have, you're an author, you've got books, you do consulting, you have your hand in a bunch of different things. And I think for a lot of people, they are interested in wearing many of those same hats. And so mm-hmm. oftentimes we feel like we can just come out of the gate and I do all of these things uh, and I try to spread the net as far and wide as possible. A, because I want to help people in as many ways as possible. B, thinking that it gives me as many opportunities as possible. So I'm curious, like what was kind of the evolution of, yes, I speak, but I also have books. And I also consult, and I also wear a few other hats there professionally. So, how did those all start to come into play? I'm assuming it wasn't all from day one. I'm going to do all these things for all these people, and hopefully, it's all going to come together and work out. What what, what did that process kind of look like? So, at the very beginning of the business, I did two things. I helped companies generate ideas. So, basically, I led idea sessions for companies, and I taught them about the dynamics of creating on demand. So we talked about how to build rhythms and practices and systems to help them collaborate more effectively. That was the the very beginning of the business. And that's what the podcast was about for a number of years. So that's what I would get invited to come speak about. Hey, come talk about this this episode you did about fear. Come talk about that to our company because we're experiencing that. So let's talk about the nuances of fear and how it plays into the creative process. Okay, great. You know, so people had specific things they wanted me to come talk about. Once the book released, the Axon Creative release in 2011, that was kind of the beginning of people just hiring me to come talk about the book. Hey, come give a 45 minute speech about the book to my company or whatever. So before you have something like that, like a book, a product, something that begins to influence people's lives, because that's what really what happens is it's kind of a virtuous cycle. You put something into the world, it impacts someone, that person has influence over an event or whatever. And that person says, Hey, let's bring this person in to speak about this thing that impacted my life, influenced my life. People usually, I mean, and I don't know about your experience, Grant, but people usually, in my experience, people don't just go out looking for a speaker. Hey, you know, we need a speaker, right? They go out looking for some kind of impact, some kind of change. You know, what kind of change do we want to see? And so for me, it's usually, you know, somebody on the committee has read The Accidental Creative or they read Die Empty or they read one of my other books or they saw me speak at another event. I'm sure that probably happens with you where somebody sees you speak at an event and then three years later, they're on some kind of a committee and they're like, hey, I saw Grant Baldwin speak. You know, we should bring him in. Or, hey, I saw Todd Henry speak. We should bring him in. That happens to me all the time. I just had somebody contact me who saw me speak in 2011. And they're like, hey, we're, our company's having a thing. With, I'm like, 2000? That's, that's an eternity ago in this right, business, right. right? But they remember it. You know, It impacted yeah. them in some way. So for me, I think putting things into the world is what gave me the opportunity to be able to influence lives, which then becomes a virtuous cycle, people inviting me in to, to, to speak. And that's, again, the podcast. It's writing blog posts. It's you're doing those kinds of things. But I think one of the things that's really helpful is if you have a very specific and precise point of view and you're not just inspiring, but you're also very practical because that's what people remember are the practical things that they walk away with that transform their life in some way. So that transition for me was idea sessions, uh, you know, doing, you know, basically teaching stuff that I was talking about on the podcast to all of a sudden when the book came out, people saw me in a different light instead of seeing me as like a keynote or as a workshop 
idea session kind of guy. They saw me as like a potential keynote opportunity. Right. And that's when things really started to shift for me in that direction. I'd say now I probably do about 85 to 90% keynotes and probably 10 to 15% workshops. Usually yeah. people want to bring me in just to speak for 45 minutes to an hour. And then 10 to 15% of what I do are, are workshops at this point. Gotcha. So I'm curious also that business is a very long-term game. And so it's a lot of early on, like a, it's kind of these seasons of planting and harvesting. And so early on, you're, you're planting a lot of seeds and it may, like you mentioned, it may be, you know, two, three, four, five years before you see some fruits of that labor and effort. So when you are today, it sounds like the bulk of what you're in terms of where you're getting gigs is mostly coming from word of mouth and people who've seen you and some kind of random stuff that is great, but it's also from the effort of years and years and years of, of work and planting those seeds. It makes it a little bit difficult at times to reverse engineer of, that's right. You know, how do I, how do I, I guess I need to do really, really good on the gig today so that I get another gig in three years from now, you know? That's pretty much the way it is. I mean, yeah. I, I wish that there was some, I mean, I, I've talked to a number of agents. I mean, I've wor worked with a handful of agencies exclusively over time, but I've talk to a number of agents and all of them, if you really, really get them into a corner and you really sort of ask them like what leads to gigs, they'll all say, ah, if we knew that we'd all be millionaires, right? Like nobody really knows what completely influences the, the buying decision. Sure. But it doesn't being out there and delivering every single time, being practical, being precise, having a point of view. This is something I think a lot of speakers don't consider is you have to have a point of view. If you don't have a point of view, people aren't going to remember you. If you don't rub some people the wrong way in your talk, you know, if, if you don't have people who are raving fans afterward and people who are like, well, that guy really irritated me. That guy, you know, yeah. if you're not in some way pushing people's buttons, people aren't going to remember you. And so you have to have a point of view. And if you have a point of view, it's much more likely you're going to be memorable in that moment, three years from that date when right. people are thinking about who they want to bring in. But I think some speakers are afraid to offend. You know, I'm not talking about being offensive, right, but I'm talking right. about not being afraid to, to stand up, to be precise, to call people out, to have a point of view. I spoke at uh, John Jance's event recently, uh, one of his duct tape marketing events. And he said, I feel like we've just been lovingly punched in the gut. And I was like, that's maybe the best compliment somebody could possibly give me because that's what I want to do, right? I want to like, right. I'm hugging you, but I'm also kind of <laughs> punching you in the gut at the same time. I think that's what a good speaker does. You know, they, they communicate warmth and they communicate presence and community. And at the same time, they're lovingly telling you things that you need to hear in order to, yeah. to go to the next level. Let's wrap it up with this. If, if you were looking back on these past several years as you were building the business, and again, you've had plenty of those highs and lows, is there anything that you would do differently or anything that you would advise to someone who's in a similar spot, who's, who's climbing up that, that proverbial mountain and uh, feels the highs and lows and everything in between? Anything that you would do different or say to them? I think one thing that's really important, and this is a trap I fell into for a couple of years. I think for a couple of years, I just, I took everything that came my way, which is fine. And you, and you should do that. I mean, you have to speak a lot, right? right you have to, right. a friend of mine gave me some great advice. He said, get your reps in. Yep, you, know, yep. you, have to, you have to get your reps in, speak in front of anybody who will let you speak, but you can't lose sight of who you're trying to serve. You know, you have to understand who it is that I'm really trying to reach. And I think some speakers get off course because they end up serving niches and you know groups of people that they didn't really intend to, to yeah. serve just because there's some demand there and then that's what they become known for so yeah. they end up falling into these traps of speaking and you know there are a lot of association events and things which are wonderful it's great great things 
but I think they end up falling into these sort of traps where they're, they're like, well, why am I not getting to speak to the people I really want to serve? Well, it's because, again, gigs lead to gigs. And so somebody sees you at a certain industry gig, and then suddenly you're that industry guy, the guy who does right. whatever, whatever the specific, I don't want to mention any specific industry because I don't want to offend <laughs> anyone by saying it, but like you become the person who's like that kind of industry yeah. speaker. And you can make money doing that. I'm not totally. decrying that, but are you having the impact that you want to have? I think is, is the big question. I think the, the main thing I would say to people who are starting out, people who really want to get into the business is you have to have good speaker video. You just do. Because when people are hiring speakers, they don't want to take a big risk. You yeah. know, really somebody who's making a, a decision about who they're going to bring in is really thinking, what are people going to think about me because of the decision of who I've decided to bring into this event? And if you fail, they fail in a big yeah. way. And so your job as a speaker is to make the person who hired you to come in look like the genius in the room. Yep. And so the best way to assure people, especially early on, is to have good speaker video. And I'll, I'll be frank with you. Like when I first started, I didn't have a lot of good speaker video because you know when you first start, you're speaking in smaller rooms in, in front of like- What's what you got? It. So you got like a camcorder recording you yeah, or whatever. Yeah. Now there's a lot more technology to make it easier today. But back then, I mean, there wasn't a lot of stuff you know, yeah. that we could, we could use. So, you know, I actually hired a friend and we went to a high school auditorium and I gave my talk and he filmed me from multiple angles. And I am not at all embarrassed to admit that in the very beginning, I actually put some laugh tracks in at certain points. <laughs> I did some other stuff just to have some, I, no, I never said, Hey, this is me speaking in front of, you know, but yeah. I wanted something that showed what I could do. Yeah. Right. I mean, that led to my first handful of gigs, which then led to having better quality video and all that kind of stuff. So don't, I mean, like you just have to, you have to be scrappy. You have to yep. figure it out if you don't have it. But video is really important because people are making a decision based upon their perception of how, of the level that you're operating at. And if all you have is like, you know, terribly lit video in some back conference room in front of 15 people, they're not going to put you on a stage in front of a thousand people. They're just not right. going to do it. Right. So, you know, I, you have to be scrappy. You have to figure it out. You have to make it happen. Totally. Yeah. We, we tell speakers all the time is to work with what you've got and improve as you go. Do it with excellence. Do it to the best of your ability. That's right. But you also can't compare, you know, your, your video today, uh, Todd, your site today, they look considerably dramatically different than they did 10 years ago. And they should. Oh, yes. So you Absolutely. can't be, for, for someone who's listening, who's like, all right, I'm, I'm working on my first demo video. You cannot compare your video today to Todd's video 10 years ahead of you. It just it, right. didn't do that. It's not fair to either of you. So right. making sure that you, again, work with what you got, do it with excellence and, and improve as you go, which also to that note, I want you to tell us where to find your site, your demo video, so we can check that stuff out. But I will also yeah. say that you have one of the best speaker sites and all of the interwebs. Oh. So I, I, I recommend it to speakers frequently. It's really, really clean and well done, really well designed. Did, did you do it yourself? Yes. Oh, yeah. that ruins it for people. Again, oh. that's the whole thing of me, not, <laughs> of me not being willing to let go of some things that I had to do early on, right? But yes. Yeah, it's it extremely is, well done. It's very it's simple. A, and, and It's like a customized, modified uh, uh, a template within a framework, right? It's like a child game within a framework that's kind of like pretty heavily customized, but... Cool. It's yeah. extremely well done. So I definitely would encourage people to check that out as well as your video. So if people want to find those as well as other info about you as well as your books, uh, where can we go? Yeah. So my, my company site is accidentalcreative.com and that's where all the podcasts and everything else I do reside. I do the Accidental Creative Podcast since 2005 and I do a, a daily show called The Daily Creative. So you can find those there. My, my site that you're referencing is toddhenry.com, T-O-D-D-A-G-N-R-Y.com, which is my personal site. And uh, there you can find out more about my speaking and, and all the other things that I do. 
as a total aside, I would assume Todd Henry is a fairly common name. Did you have any trouble getting that domain? You know what? Actually, back when I was in, as I mentioned, my misguided 20s, I was a, I was a, a, a singer, traveling uh, performer singer uh, uh-huh. in my early 20s. And this guy that I know said, you know, this internet thing is starting to become a thing. So I bought your domain. I bought your name as a domain. I just That's wanted wild. to let you know I bought this for you. And so he, he and I basically shared custody of that domain. And then like four or five years later, he's like, I'll just, let me just give it to you. Mm-hmm. I was really fortunate that early on he bought that domain name, toddhenry.com, yeah. and uh, was able to hold on to it. I wish I grabbed like todd.com or something. Right, right, right. Yeah. That's amazing. I probably I could have back then. I, I had to buy grantbaldwin.com from another Grant Baldwin probably, yeah. uh, probably 12 years ago or so. And think uh, he only charged me 300 bucks. Could have been exorbitantly more. Wow. Um, I actually purchased the domain names for my, all three of my daughters and my wife. And uh, I, I tell them I'm just squatting on those until they need them someday. And I'll <laughs> sell it back to them at an exorbitant rate. So It's smart. It's actually smart to get ahead of that because yeah, I mean, now it's just, it's impossible. Like I have business ideas all the time. And I, I probably own like 70 or 80 domain yep, names yep. for business names, but I'll go out and look for things. And there's nothing, nothing yeah. is available. And unless you want to buy like, you know, such and such dot website or something right, right. like all the dot coms dot nets dot orgs you know they're yeah. all kind of eaten up at this point yeah but you could pay like four grand if you want to buy them you, you know pay a lot of money that's an interesting game yeah. to be in for sure well todd thanks for the time man we really appreciate it enjoyed the conversation and appreciate the uh, insights that you shared thanks grant thanks for the great work that you do All right, there you go. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Todd Henry. Again, you can find his website over at toddhenry.com. And like I mentioned to you before, you definitely want to check out our new YouTube channel by going over to youtube.com slash the speaker lab. Again, youtube.com slash the speaker lab. We can see all these speech breakdown videos where we're going to show you exactly how you can become a better speaker and kill it in your next presentation. So again, find that over at youtube.com slash the speaker lab, or you can actually just do a search there for a speech breakdown. You should find some of our different videos towards the top. All right, my friends, that wraps up today's episode. We'll catch you next time. You're awesome.